Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases, as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. Okay, everybody, in the final installment of the Mucho Case Study we have Mucho's human Sam here. And Sam and I are going to go over, you know, just some basic questions that I always like to ask and then where Mucho is now. So Sam, will you say hi to everybody, say your name and also share your pronouns? Hi everyone. Thanks for having me, Sarah. My pronouns are she and her. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, the first question that I have for you is what led you to start private coaching with me or kind of what, what was the final straw with Mucho, your beloved Mucho? So as you mentioned, we had done a seminar together and like, I think I learned more in those three days than I had in the year and a half that I had owned Mucho at that point. And I was training with some really great handlers and trainers and probably, like you said, the, probably the top trainers and handlers in the country. And everything I was doing, he was just getting worse. Like it seemed every trial I entered, he had a bigger explosion. Every class I did, because at that point I decided to pull out of trials, like that was step one, right? And then it just seemed like everything was just continually getting worse till that weekend. And then I like literally only had 40 minutes of video footage and I reviewed it and learned more than like I can even imagine in each of those minutes of watching it. And I remember my like final like training time with Sarah was a lesson and I had my really good friends sitting there watching and taking notes. I bought three people to take notes. That's how much I was like <laughs> trying to get information wise. And it was so overwhelming, the thing she was saying. My best friend just wrote green-lipped muscles, <laughs> like supplements. <laughs> that was all she had. As like, And, like, it was a 45-minute lesson, and it, it was a lot of talking and not a lot of training. <laughs> so for that to be what we took away made me realize that, like, I, if I was going to change, I needed to dive deep. You wrote down green-lipped muscles, so like, what, I suggested that as a supplement or something? Like... Yeah, and that's all we could write down. That's so funny. Um, yeah, because we did, uh, a, I taught a two-day seminar. I believe it was worked up. And then you had a private lesson as well at the end of the seminar. So I did it like a day of lessons. And we, I think that I could see 
that like you were going to be able to do this, but that you were going to need a lot of help doing it. Um, and so frequently it's not about training the dog, right? Like that's why the 45 minutes was mostly us talking and not training mucho. So after that, you were pretty much like, okay, this chick is going to help me or <laughs> I'm, I, or what, what did she say beside green lipped muscles? I guess I'm going to have to pay her some more money <laughs> to get that information. <laughs> yeah, the first step, I'm going to the store. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. So then we started coaching together and did our deep dive that I have gone over in the last couple of podcasts about Mucho. So of everything that I asked you to do, because I asked you to flip everything that you had already, that you had been doing pretty much on its head. So a lot of hard things. What was the hardest thing that I asked you to do? The hardest thing was allowing Mucho to opt out. Um, I think it, I didn't understand how a dog could be so engaged and so there and excited and ready to do the thing and not be able to. It's not that he was going to sniff across the arena. Like I would have seen that and been like, yeah, he can't right now. But instead he was like pushing into me more almost. And I'm a crackhead like him and we wanted to do PVC jumps together. So I think being able to recognize that just because his pupils are dilated out of his head and he's so eager and ready to be at the building as much as I am, he couldn't do what I was asking. Um, so I think just seeing that and allowing him to say no and like, we're not going to do agility tonight. And that sucks because I spent my whole night driving 45 minutes here and warmed you up really nicely. And we're going to sit here and just keep hanging out or we're going to leave and drive back home in rush hour. So that was hard. Yeah, a little bit hard. You are not the only person who I've worked with who has been honest with me about just how difficult it is to truly give the dog a choice, which means that when the dog says no or says I can't, you don't get to ask them again. You don't get to do it anyway, right? So like if you override the fact that they said no, then they, they stop trusting your ask, right? They stop trusting your question. And it was so difficult because he's not checking out. He's not sniffing. He's not, you know, he's, there's that kind of classic dog that we all look at that we know doesn't want to do agility, right? And Mucho's not that dog. He looks like he's having a great time, actually. Um, he's not the first dog in my career that is really quick, really fast, really pushy, really drivey, but also communicating clearly that he's not actually able to do the thing. And you, I just have to say, you did that work and you let him say no. And sometimes that just meant that you cried in your car on the way home. <laughs> And yeah, <laughs> like a lot of times actually. And that's so punishing for the person and you went through it anyway. And I just really appreciate that because all of the things that we did kind of rely on that. They hinge on you letting the dog say no. Do you feel that way? 
Yeah, I think that that's what ultimately led to his feeling change. Like, I think I could have gone at this completely different and said, okay, I need to get more fluency in my obstacles. I need to become a better handler. Like, I can make up for this, basically. And instead, I said, no, he's not in a good mindset. He's, like, gone. He's on a different planet. He needs to be here and be able to talk to me and figure out what we're going to do together. I don't need to, like, get a dog walk so good. He knows it when I scream it across the arena. I needed to be able to walk in there and have him say, okay, I'm calm. What are we going to do today? instead of be blasting out of his collar and barking at me and mauling me, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was pretty, pretty much going to take you down. Yeah. You were, you were not bleeding, I don't think, but <laughs> it was not, it was not nice. So the hardest thing I asked you to do was let him opt out. What's the most surprising thing I asked you to do? Definitely teaching Mucho to eat. So I took the online worked up. I took it. I went to the seminar and I still like sat in my chair until that Sunday private lesson and was like, Mucho eats. Every time I give him a cookie, he puts it in his mouth. And sometimes like I didn't realize that him choking and not swallowing it and following through with the actual eating behavior was a problem. And I would say probably 80% of the cookies he took, he would put a cookie in his mouth and then he would just like hold them and eventually have this one big like choke because they were all just sitting in his mouth. Yeah. And then we would stand there and let him choke and like breathe it out. And then he'd just take the next cookie because he was like so high that he didn't even like recognize that I was putting food in his mouth. Because somewhere in your training, he figured out the next thing doesn't happen unless I do take that cookie. And I don't even think you did that on purpose, but a lot of people do it kind of just incidentally. The dog learns, if I take the food into my mouth, then we can progress past this stupid part where she asked me to take food, right? And so we literally had to teach this animal to take food in a variety of contexts. And it was, you know, saying to you a choke just one little hack is indicative of you don't get to move forward in the progression, right? In the arousal testing uh, procedure, that's kind of punishing for you too. Because yeah, I think we, I think like I was so excited to start our coaching because I was like, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to teach this dog agility. And then we did four months of teaching him to eat. Like, <laughs> oh my God, we did. It took that long. But it, I mean, there was a year and a half history of him taking a cookie and choking or putting a ball in his mouth instead. Yep, there was. And we had to undo that. And actually, you know, math wise, undoing it in four months when it was a year and a half before that was pretty good. It's pretty quick. Um, and I talked in the last episode about some of the specifics there. But one of the things was you just went ahead and threw your whole paycheck at like large treats. <laughs> the large, the huge chunks of freeze dried raw that you would just get. I mean, that stuff is not cheap. I know because I use it for Felix. And yeah, yeah just. Well, I, I'm like a real big treat expert now that I had a dog who couldn't yes, eat. So you can label it, but. <laughs> 
I, I mean, I went through a lot of treats and like when he switched to the freeze dried roll and could eat a packaged food, that was a success because like I was making him homemade meatballs because that's, it had to be the perfect size. It had to be the perfect texture. It had to be the same. I couldn't switch in a session. Like, and he still choked. <laughs> you, I forgot you handmade. But like the crazy, like it was crazy. Yeah. But what, what that is, when you really look at it, is just altering the antecedents to get the behavior you want, is looking at eating as, a, as an opera behavior and then doing what you need to do to get that behavior reliably. Now I feel whatever. Like he trains, he trains agility for Kimball. Like he trains for Charlie Bears. Like, yeah, he's fluent in eating now. Yeah. It, it, like when I was doing the retraining of his eating, I should be clear with this. I wasn't doing agility. I wasn't doing the retraining and agility context. I was like on a trail teaching him to eat on a trail, like phone propped up on a rock. Like we, <laughs> we went deep into eating. And just standing in your living room and standing in your backyard. Yeah. And just feeding the dog. The number of just feeding the dog videos that I reviewed. Four months worth. And I, 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 I mean, I got my money's worth. I feel like I sent you at least like 20 minutes of video like every other day. You did. And <laughs> I'm just such a nerd that I was fascinated by every second. and was like, oh, well, look, oh, he twitched his ear that time. And then he kind of maybe bit his cheek a little bit. And then he choked. So maybe if we change this and then we change this. So we went deep into eating and that was that was really surprising. And so what I would tell anybody listening is that if you've got a dog whose eating behavior is not fluent, meaning if you're in the agility context and they refuse food or like, so that's an extreme version that's very common or just they hack on food all the time when you're training, right? But they don't have anything structurally wrong with them, which you actually made sure that there was nothing structurally wrong with him that was causing the choking. That's something that needs to be repaired because it had an enormous impact on what you were able to do from there with him. Because if the dog can't eat, I'm not sure what, you know, you can't do much from there. Yeah, that was definitely step one in our communication rehab, right? Like, can you take a cookie from me? And then it got to the point where it's, can you do two minutes of work and then go get a cookie? Can you take it from a dish? Can you take it from a manners minder? What if the manner minor is behind you? Like, what if, like, there was, a, he has a million eating scenarios now and he's very, very, very fluent. Yeah, he is. He's fluent in all of them. Um, and again, yeah, that took some serious time. So the hardest was letting him opt out. The most surprising was that we had to teach him to eat. But what's the most important? Like, what's the thing that will change the way that you live with dogs forever? Exercise. Like, it's probably when you, like, when we re picked apart my, like, exercise cycle and went from just kind of what I'll call, like, social play of him going to a field and hanging out with our dog friends to actual hiking I think he and I changed I'm sure like choosing exercise and to being outside and sunshine and like relaxing with your dog is amazing so like even my new dog now literally first day picked her up and we went to a trail and um it just like everyone in the household will do like 
literally the whole family will exercise and it just makes us all compatible life partners instead of being a little bit on edge. <laughs> I love that. I, when I'm really busy, I won't necessarily get out every day because it is about, um, it's more than a half an hour drive for me to get to where I walk. Um, so I, so I went out yesterday for a long time, like two and a half hours and just, we're all so much better today. <laughs> we're all better. <laughs> we are, I'm going to jinx it, but you haven't heard an Icelandic sheepdog bark once during this. Um, you know, we are, I love what you just said that it makes us all kind of more compatible life partners with each other. Like when you and your dog are both out there in nature, in the sunshine, a thing happens, I think, where you're both getting what you need. Like we know that physical movement is the most efficient way to rid the body of stress. But also you're doing that thing together. Like there's a thing that you both need and you're both getting it together. And it's amazing. And I love that you immediately just took your puppy out. Yeah, I mean, like Mucho is a cartoon character of a dog. Like you can't even imagine what this dog looks like until you see him and he like walks in with his big lonely lips and is just like this ginormous, like if a pit bull was a border collie though, like that's Mucho. And so he's just like a character. Like I can't be mad at him when he's like on a trail, like being silly and like doing mucho things. So I think that like not only bonded us, but it kind of just like made us both at a little bit of a healthier state. Like I can enjoy him for more than just an agility dog, if that makes sense, which is like a big step for anyone with performance dogs to like kind of step aside from what your goal is and just enjoy a living being with you. <laughs> You know, it shouldn't have to be said. And I feel like if people are listening who are not sport people, they're like, okay, so what's wrong with all of you people? Because isn't that the point in having a dog? But when you get really immersed in dog sports, you can easily forget that part. You can easily start to appreciate them mostly for the sport and not as much for just being a dog. And I totally agree with you. Hiking with them really reminds me to appreciate the very special thing that a dog is beyond the sport that we do with them. And I love doing sports with my dogs. You, you still also really appreciate sports, but you look at sports differently now than you did. Um, and I think maybe that was a that was a transformative thing for you. I went through it too, in a different way, kind of going from sports with the dog being the primary reason for having the dog to back to, back to just actually companionship and appreciating who they are being the primary reason for having a dog. Was it just exercise? that helped you to kind of make that mindset shift or did the other pieces play into that as well? Um, I mean, everything always goes together, right? Balance, it, it all flows together. So like 
there has nothing like this is what kind of dog nerd I am there is nothing that makes me want to like smile and feel giddy on the inside than like handing my dog like some really good food to sit there and enjoy even if it's just like I just like put together this raw meal and now I'm gonna like put it in a licking mat for you and watch you do it like that that's what kind of jazzes me so like that plays into me wanting to like do things with these beings too and same thing with being like communicating with them is so huge like there's nothing that makes you feel more powerful and good than being able to have this creature that can so like sophisticatedly communicate with you to do something that you guys want to do together like that's like a pretty good feeling so that's why all of us performance people are psychos because we're all on some power trip trying to control this thing to do what we want to do <laughs> and it feels really good when it works <laughs> it does it totally so, does and the faster they are and the more powerful they are the it feels. it's like your stakes it's really amazing car or something i don't know i don't really know i drive minivans so um (laughs) it's a good great metaphor for me to use um so what is our update what are you where are they now sam and mucho are definitely in the woods doing a lot of hiking what else was i was just gonna say if you live within two hours of columbus ohio you will run into us on a trail at some point like (laughs) that's about what we're doing but (laughs) um no i mean like you said we're hiking a lot we do that like it's almost one of those things now that's so scheduled that i like rush home so i can get to the park at a good time and get an hour an hour and a half of sunshine and like it's a weird thing that's in my schedule and uh I guess I shouldn't say it's weird. It's pretty good, but like I like get anxious if I don't get enough park time. Like I'm worse than Mucho now, and like Mucho literally goes and like walks next to me and eats his Charlie Bears and his kibble, and I'm just like, okay, we gotta get there and we gotta get this many miles in. <laughs> like I have to rotate my dogs. I'm hiking so much. That's how ridiculous it's getting. But it's fine. That's life. It's good. And um, he's in a local agility class, so we go to like a courses type class every week, um, and it's just like. A normal class like I never had to say like hey my dog might maul me the first couple of times I'm here like I just kind of went and signed up and he's been fitting in and like not making a big scene about anything and not being what I'll call like a disruption I'm not out there taking five minutes of a turn when I should have 30 seconds or whatever um and I it's so what I'll call like low stakes now after doing this whole training program, like before this would be high stakes to me. And it's so low stakes that I'll opt out before I'll opt in. Like, I'll be like, my shoes untied. I'm going to skip this course. And they're like, okay. <laughs> I got to stretch. Like, <laughs> you can skip my turn. So it's a different mindset for me, but it's because of all the work I put into him. Right. So that's kind of amazing. So you went from, can you maybe describe the other kinds of classes or the classes that you used to do where you would think of it as high stakes, right? So like if you're considering this low stakes, the class that you had to leave crying was obviously high stakes in your head, right? So like leaving, opting out hurt really badly. And now with this situation, you can leave, you can opt out, you can tie your shoe and skip your run. Like, skip the whole class if you want, done that. <laughs> skip the whole class. Is, is that all about 
just changing your mind about sports with mucho in general or is that about just you putting a different level of pressure on yourself I mean I have mucho entered in trials like I should say that like I'm trialing this dog and I am training this dog but like in the big scheme of things I put in so much work into him that if I skip a turn or if I skip a class like he'll be fine. We're doing good. Um, and like, if I go to a trial and he acts an idiot and I pull the next day and go hiking, we're doing good. It's fine. Like, so I guess that every part of agility is lower stakes to me now. I think before I was like really wanting to have a dog where I could go to a regional event or I could go to a national. And like, I think that's as much of the social aspect of it, where I wanted to travel with my friends and go to this and like, once that was like, I guess the pandemic was really good timing for me and Mucho because once all of that was stripped, I really took a moment to like reevaluate what I cared about and what mattered to me. I think that's so important for really all of us are kind of reevaluating our choices that we were making before in the before times. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you just feel so that part was kind of taken away which was actually it was totally perfect timing because I think it would have been or do you think it would have been harder for you to do what I asked and stop entering trials and stop going to classes if it weren't the pandemic well when we were working together it wasn't the pandemic like the trials were on the table but I wasn't entering them with him so I guess that's the kind of weird timeline right but um I th I'm like, the pandemic was the perfect stop, but I think that I had like pretty much decided that we were going to go at our own pace and we were going to teach the dog to eat for four months and we were going to retrain a bunch of obstacles that we did and like kind of go at our own pace. And I had accepted that if he never entered a trial, it was fine that we were kind of ticking away at agility as part of us communicating and enjoying each other. So, I mean, there was a lot of things that we accepted and changed on our training plan though. Like we went from the first couple weeks of really trying to do like the crate training in an agility building to just saying like, we didn't need that. So I think we pivoted a lot on his plans and like that included the entire end goal. And I remember saying, if someone told me when I started coaching that I was gonna end coaching with like, okay, you might never enter a trial again and you're really happy. I would have been like, no, that's not the goal. Like, right, you're like, no, the goal- We're going to sign up sports. Do you not see it. this? <laughs> yes, like, do you not see this beefy guy? Like he wants to jump the jumps. So you, you're saying something that's I think really important for anybody to think about who might be like wanting to do the same, a similar kind of deep dive is that to date, if I've had a client not fully accept and let go, what like the outcome, basically, they haven't reached their goals unless they do that. The peep, and then if they don't reach their goal, a lot of times it's because they can't do it. They can't let go of the outcome. So that feels backwards. That feels like, no, if you, you want the goal and you don't let it go and you chase it, you'll get it. Like that's what we're taught, right? But actually letting go of it, accepting it may not be, accepting that, you know, what will come is what will. 
and that you're just going to focus on the process and do your best on the way there to date with my clients. Like those are the, the clients who do that full acceptance work are the ones that really reach all the goals that they wanted to. Yeah. And you, I feel like being ready to change your goal and like kind of pivot with grace, right? That's like the main moment. Like literally, I feel like I went from training agility four days a week and sending you lots of agility footage to being like, please don't train there. And I'm like, all right, I guess we won't. And then just pivoting and going to do something else. So things like that are tricky, right? Yeah. And you, I mean, you just had to let go of so many things and changed so many things that it was almost just at some point you were like, okay, (laughs) at some point you just got to the point where the next thing I told you that you had to give up, you were like, all right. Yeah. One of my really good friends kept saying, remember that she was like, Sarah is Dumbledore. You you just can't argue with it. Just keep listening. And like, she'll hear this and she's going to laugh because that's what she'll like. Sarah is Dumbledore. You're just going to have to do what she says. And I'm like, it's worked this far. Oh, that's pretty much my favorite thing anybody's ever said about me. It's the kindest, sweetest, biggest compliment I've ever received. Um, but you did, you totally did. You just fully, you went for it. You did everything. And you and Mucho, I think are a really good team now. And I also think now you can focus on agility. Like now, you two can figure out how to be a great team on course because you're a great team everywhere else. Right? Like- yeah. And yeah. Like I think we've um like in Mucho's life story, right? He's he's like if you were like, oh this girl's done 15 years of agility and she thought she could get a Mucho and do agility, she's a psycho. And you're like, you're right. But also, like, I had some weird underdog type dogs before that I had, like, trained agility, had really good results, like, dogs you wouldn't expect to be yeah, good it's at it. kind of your thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, when a student brought me Mucho for a private, to, like, to take a lesson with me, and she was like, he's jumping my six-foot fence. I'm like, oh, I want him. That was the psycho moment. But someone had to stop me. <laughs> like, I want him. <laughs> jumping my six foot fence gimme that if that's not a sport person I don't know what is like yeah it's the psycho moment like I had to have something that was like an intervention to like show me like you're not even dog training you're just like running around being crazy so that was good though like I think I did learn a lot of dog training and like really understanding how to observe like if he's actually okay versus if he's just like on Mars and excited because he's having an stream adrenaline dump (laughs) so today you guys are you're going to class you're going to trials you're good team everywhere and I just want to say thank you so much for doing all of that hard work and doing the hard things that I asked you to do and doing the surprising stupid work of getting this dog to eat um and thank you so much for sharing this with everybody and allowing me to share your story because people the feedback I'm already getting is tremendous people really resonate with stories like this so is there anything is there anything else that you want to add Yes, I feel like I should tell your people if you're like doing something and you're doing it really really hard but it's still not working you need to reevaluate 
because I felt like I was training mucho and I was training so hard. Like, I remember thinking like, oh my God, how can I not teach this dog to do agility? Like I'm doing it four days a week. Like I'm working with the best people I know how to work with. Like, and I still cannot handle this beast. So pivot often, right? Change, get someone new, get a fresh set of eyes, like figure out what you need. And like, maybe reevaluate what, what you even think you need, right? Maybe what you're trying to accomplish doesn't make sense and you need to do it on a different level. I feel like that's that's a life lesson right there. You're doing something really, really hard and it's not working. Probably pivot. Probably pivot is a good choice. All right, Sam, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Thanks for sharing all your Dumbledore facts and knowledge with me and Mucho. It's been amazing. <laughs> My pleasure. Cheers. All right, this one comes from Connor and it's a little bit long, but I think it's important that I read all of it. So Connor writes, in the past couple months, Greg has started yelling and Greg is their dog at client dogs when they're loaded up into crates. There are a couple dogs he always cusses out and a couple dogs he never does and a couple that it depends on the day. Things I've tried without success. Grumpily vocalizing back at him. LOL. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, covering his crate. Switching which of the four crates I put him in. Switching which of the crates I put the other dog in. Showing him the dog before loading them into the crate. Chucking cookies into his crate before, after, before, and after loading dog up. Uh, giving him his usual topple in his crate at the start of the day. Not giving him one in case of resource guarding. Further context, contingencies, details, he gets along swimmingly with every dog, every single dog. One of the dogs he always yells at, recently neutered young adult cattle dog. The other um, is a pediatric neutered mixy mix, which is Greg's friend. Girls are almost never yelled at. Uh, dogs are never yelled at after hiking, no matter what order they're loaded up. So that's the most important detail to me so far. Vocalizing lasts fewer than five seconds, generally a grumble bark bark before quieting. It's not the end of the world. The other dogs get cookies for loading up and no one has put on the brakes because of this rude behavior, but it could definitely bother future dogs and it bothers me. Leaving them home while we work on it is on it is possible. Picking them up after everyone else honestly isn't logistically realistic. So I'm glad that you gave me all these details because I would have said, you know, putting him in last is an option. So one thing is, you know, avoiding the issue would be I would actually get him out station him or tie him up, then put the dog in, then put him in so that he's not in there when they load up. So that's one thought. That's avoiding it. Um, the interesting piece that he doesn't do it after a walk, is that because he's tired or is that because he's been buds with them? So what I would for, for a minute, because they've been on a walk. So one thing I would try, Connor, is um, before loading the dogs, take, you know, you go pick up a dog get Greg out of the car, take him and that dog on the shortest little leash walk around the block, and then load them in the car. And I wonder then if he will not be a jerk about it. So that's another thought. I would just do that and gather that information that is it because he's tired? Or is it because he needs a second to remember this is his buddy? Um, those would be the questions I would have. And then, you know, further, if this is brand new, I, it's time for a vet check. 
unfortunately, because um, he's not a puppy. He does this with you all the time. Um, you guys, Connor walks dogs, um, does awesome remedial socialization stuff with a bunch of dogs. So this is a normal thing for Greg to be in a car with a lot of dogs. So if this is a brand new behavior for him, he needs a vet check as well. So those are the things I would try and you should definitely let me know how it's going. All right. Next one comes from Lindsay. In your most recent episode, you mentioned enrolling Rhea in puppy kindergarten because she has a high responsiveness to other dogs, thinks they're important. She becomes fixated, never feels neutral. I would love to hear more on your strategy with this. My two-year-old dog is very much the same way. Did we miss the boat on this aspect of socialization? Can this be helped with just time in group classes? Do we need to start with Dog Park TV? So grateful for your awesome podcast. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. Um, so a two-year-old, I would go about it a little bit differently than with Ray. Um, Raya was a baby baby when she was enrolled, like 14 weeks old. Um, actually, I think even younger, I think like 12 weeks. So my strategy was just to train her around other dogs show her that I'm a reinforcing thing around other dogs. And she had high responsiveness, but I didn't let her go into the training space until her responsiveness kind of neutralized as well. So we spent a lot of time right outside the training space where luckily it's perfect. She could see in because it was an open air barn. Her responsiveness would lessen. We would go in, we would train. With a two-year-old, enrolling in classes where you can do that is definitely part of what I would do if the dog's not aggressive. And then everything in the Barking Lungy series, I would do all of it. Um, always be thinking about, you know, a swinging, there's a swinging pendulum, right? And if it's swinging super high on the right side, then the dog's maybe hypersocial, too friendly. If it's swinging super high on the left side, the dog is reactive, aggressive. And then in the middle, the dog is kind of where, where we want them to be, kind of neutral or uh, neutral to friendly, right? So always be thinking, is this activity pushing my pendulum into the right place? Is this activity helping me to see the behaviors that I want to be seeing or not? And that those are the real questions. It's not about here's your prescribed process. It's about, um, it's about does your, do your actions show you the behaviors that you want to be seeing? And last one this week comes from Sabine who writes, could you please talk about empty clicks as they seem to be emerging an emerging thing in clicker training. Trainers that use the concept of click but don't treat during some of the repetitions argue that it keeps the dog's motivation much higher than if they treat after each click. Maybe it depends on the dog, but I feel there's a broken promise to the dog. So it makes my skin crawl <laughs> when people click and don't treat. I have like a visceral response. I completely agree that it's a broken promise, a broken, you know, breach of contract. If it gets, um, you know, certainly withholding reinforcement, so clicking and not reinforcing might, you know, is basically like a putting the dog on a variable ratio of reinforcement, meaning that you are making the behavior resilient to extinction, but you will also get variations in behavior if you're using variations in re reinforcement and it's it's truly just not the way to use a bridge okay so a clicker is a bridging stimulus by definition it is bridging to something it should be bridging to reinforcement and you are not using it correctly if you use it and then do not feed 
So um, you're totally right to have kind of a gut feeling that is against that. Thanks for your question. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists, where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dogarino and get access to my training sessions with my own dog, so that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.